Good to be together this morning. We are into week three of our Church Essential series where we have been exploring what we've called the four G's. So if you've been here before, it's quiz time. I think only one person really truly like worked hard and got the four G's and he was one of our elders in the first service. So I expect great things. What are the four G's that we're walking through? Do you remember? Gather, go, give, and grow. Okay, that's pretty good. Grace is a good G to work through too. It's, that's kind of spread out through all of these things as well. But the four we're looking at are gather, go, give, and grow. And so we've been digging into these four G's, and we've said that these are uh, essential beliefs of Trinity Bible Church, but they're not just Trinity-specific essentials. They're really core parts of what it means to follow Jesus anywhere. So if you're visiting and, and attend church elsewhere, it's okay. You can, you can stay with us, hang with us here, and, and it's okay. I'd also like to go a little bit further than that this morning and suggest that these four things even go beyond church essentials, but they're actually part of what it means to be human. Let me explain that a bit. Christians believe that, that our, our worldview, our story, the Christian story, isn't just our story that is equal and on par with several other stories, but rather it is the true story of how the world, how we got here, uh, what, our, what our role is, what our mission is, and how things will end. And so we believe that the, the, the Christian testimony is that this is the true story of the world, of how things are supposed to work. And so when we're talking about something like this, about gather and go and give and grow, we're saying that, again, this isn't just a Trinity thing. This isn't just a, a Christian thing, but it's a human thing. That this is a part of all of our story. It's fundamental to who we are. We would say and believe that, that everyone, every human is created by God to gather in community. We're made for one another. And you see that we, we gather on a weekend and there's something about needing and wanting to be together that we have. But if we look outside of the church, there are any number of reasons and excuses sometimes people come up with so that they are gathered together, they are in community, whether it's a sports team or hobbies or, uh, I don't know, PTA at the schools, whatever it is. There's all sorts of reasons that we as humans gather together. We were made for one another. We believe as well that we are by nature sent by God to be His witnesses of of who God is. And we believe that all humanity is created in the image of God, and therefore we're all meant to reflect His image and tell people about who God is. And so we go. When we talk about giving today, this isn't just a practice we believe that Christians should do, but we see that, that, that all humans were really meant to be givers. We can see people who have absolutely no religious affiliation or who are even hostile to anything religious-like, who are very generous with their time, with their, with their money, with their talents. We believe that humans are made to be givers, that God has created an an economy, if you will, where he will bless people and then people are to bless others and pass that blessing along. And next week when we talk about growing, we'll see that fundamentally people were created to to grow, not just to get some sort of point of, of, of development and then stop there and just sort of coast through the rest of life, but rather to be always learning and developing and getting better. That's just who we are as humans. And so if we want to strive to become more human, we will continue to grow and grow into who God has created us to be. So I hope that even in this sort of brief overview and introduction, you can see that these four G's aren't just something that make Trinity unique, but rather these are things that we believe that everyone, all of God's people are called to do and to be. 
So we'll keep working through these steps this weekend, next, and we'll keep using this language around here as we want to become more and more of who God has called us to be. A people who gather, a people who, who go and who reflect who He is, a people who give of themselves, and a people who are constantly growing. Because these are essential elements of what it means to be human. And I think maybe it's important for us to view these things this way through this framework, especially maybe as we come to week three on giving, because out of the four, out of gather, go, give, and grow, this one, the the give piece, seems the easiest one to try and find and draw a line in the sand and say, okay, preacher, how much giving do I have to do before you get off my back? Right? Where's, where's the line when we've given enough? It's a little harder to measure things like gathering and, and going and growing, but this one maybe is, is the one we feel like we can put our hands on. Uh, the other thing I'll say is that uh, as we get started here, if you're new to Trinity or to church, you're just checking this out this week and thought, for whatever reason, you know, I'm going I'm to check out this church. But you've been hesitant in the past because you think the church just wants your money and wants to talk about money and that's all we talk about. Well, welcome, we're talking about money this morning. All your fears have come true. But it gets worse because we're going to talk about your time and your talents too. Today we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, so if you have a Bible with you, I'd invite you to open up. Uh, 2 Corinthians is sort of earlier in the New Testament. We've got our four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We've got Acts and Romans, and then First and Second Corinthians. So that's sort of how to track through there. Uh, I'm going to start doing something a little bit different here for the next little bit, is that I'm not going to put too much of the Bible verses up on the screen. Now, part of this is a need for necessity. We're going through two chapters really quickly. That's like 200 slides at a verse at a time or whatever, right? But really practically, the reason is I want to get us more practice and used to flipping or scrolling through our Bibles. Now, I'll get some key points up there to help follow along and some key verses. If you need a Bible, there are some in the middle of the room. We'd love you to have one and keep it. If you need a Bible, that's going to be our gift to you. So this morning, we're going to start at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and I'll read verses 1 through 7 to begin. If you've got one of the, the kind of pew Bible, church Bibles there, it's on either page 563 or 628, depending on which printing of that Bible you've tracked down. Let me start reading for us. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1. Paul writes this to the church. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace." But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and in all earnestness, and in all our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Now, these verses, these first seven verses of chapter 8, are something of a, of a, maybe an abstract or a thesis that Paul is making for the rest of the two chapters. So there's three things we're going to point out here in these verses we just read, and Paul's then going to back up those points through the rest of those two chapters, and that's where we're headed this morning as we talk about generosity. So, the first thing Paul is saying here, he's not talking about tithing in these chapters. These two chapters aren't talking about tithing. 
Now, the, the tithe really quick is the giving of a tenth to the church to support ministry. But here, tithing is actually already assumed by Paul. And we see this in verse 5, where he says, They gave themselves first to the Lord, there's the tithe, and then over and above by the will of God to us. Now, the main reason, one of the main reasons Paul is writing this letter to the church at Corinth here is that another church, the church in Jerusalem, is undergoing intense persecution and they need help and they need financial help. So Paul is writing to this church to try to uh, drum up support and get some funds to take back to the church in Jerusalem with him to help that church. So Paul starts out these couple chapters telling the story of the Macedonian church. And we'll have a map. There's a map up here. We'll see Macedonia is kind of in that, that northwest top left-hand corner there is where those, those churches are. Uh, he's writing to the church in Corinth, which is in modern-day Greece. Uh, and Jerusalem is cropped off in the bottom left, bottom right corner there below Caesarea, just so we can get a sort of a lay of the land and see where we're talking about here. So Paul starts talking about how this church, this Macedonian church, uh, saying that they gave themselves first to the Lord, they, they, they gave their tithe and their offering, and then over and above that, they gave to Paul so that they could take those funds back to Jerusalem. And we'll, we'll get to the Macedonians a bit, but we need to start here. As Christians, as followers of Jesus, kind of a baseline for how we handle our finances includes the tithe. And so Paul is assuming that here. Many of us today, maybe we, we don't assume that. We don't assume beyond that. And living here in the Bow Valley, getting there, getting to that 10% number is, can be a very real struggle. No matter where you are on the financial spectrum, 10% is 10%, and that's a big chunk. That's a significant piece. And especially when that tithe is designed to be, it's supposed to be, as the, the biblical word here is the first fruits, it's supposed to be the best and first of what we have gets given to God. And so Paul is praising this Macedonian church that even though they're in extreme poverty, as he says in verse 2, they not only gave their tithe, but they went over and above and gave to Paul and to the church in Jerusalem. Now again, for some of us, this is, this is really, really hard. This is a hard thing. Budgets are already tight. The cost of living in the Bow Valley isn't going down anytime soon, I don't think. Be nice. And making ends meet is a struggle. And so the idea of giving 10% just seems like a high and lofty but unrealistic goal. And I get it. I get it. The goal of looking at this text this morning isn't to minimize that struggle and say, well, listen, Paul assumes it, so I'm going to assume it. We're all going to assume that we're already doing that. And let's talk about giving more than that. Because even that 10% is a very real struggle for many of us. I get it. But let me encourage you to make this, this tithe... This idea of first fruits, an automatic category for yourself. And work towards it. Work at it. Work towards it as an act of worship and obedience. Work towards that 10% number. If we have kids, we will model this for them as well. If our priority is to offer back to God a portion of everything he's given us, and, and we make that important in our lives, and our kids see that, then as they grow up and, and move out, it will be far more likely that it will be important to them as well. Just like any spiritual discipline. If going to church on Sunday is important to dad, then going to church on Sunday will be important to the kids as they grow up. And on and on it goes. So we understand that, that this is a struggle. Kind of the flip side, though, is, is 10% is always 10%. So wherever we land on the, the spectrum, as our income changes too, so does what that 10% represents. 
Now, personally, we as a family do pretty much all of our giving automatically and online, which is a great way to do it. We, uh, the church uh, is set up to take online giving, so if, if that's something you want to talk about, uh, talk, chat with me after. But we give uh, to the church, we give to some missionaries that we support overseas, we sponsor a couple of compassion kids, and all these things just sort of automatically come out, which is really great uh, for people like me, and maybe you can identify it with the, well, I forgot the checkbook and I don't carry cash syndrome in our day and age. So when these things just, just head out, that's super helpful to make it happen. But the thing is, when, whenever we sit down or when I sit down and look at our budget or, or log into the bank or whatever and see, oh, these things have come out and again, again and again and again. Sometimes it's really easy to sit there, and I'm not great at math, but I'm good enough at math to see how these things add up and start to think about, you know, what, what else could I have done with that? Maybe especially uh, this spring when we had about four or five, felt like forever weeks of minus 30, and the travel agents started really upping their game on the Facebook ads, and we saw a beach every other ad, and I was like, man, that would be really nice. It looks a lot nicer there than it is here right now. Maybe this... Uh, uh, rumbles up in you when, when Apple has their new launch uh, Wednesday ceremony or whatever it's called and they, they put out the new phone like hey you should you'd have this great phone it plays games it takes pictures and, and I don't think they even talked about it but I think the iPhone can actually make phone calls too <laughs> this this math adds up in my head too when I start maybe again especially on social media playing that comparison game or I look around the neighborhood oh they got a new this Oh, they're doing this. Or a new whatever season starts in the valley. Oh, the new skis are out. The new golf clubs are out. The new climbing, the new bike, all this stuff is there. Boy, it sure would be nice to have that extra 10%. On the flip side, I know that there are things that that we could do to be able to give more. That we could cut other things out of our lives in an effort to support more missionaries or give more in general. I know that we aren't being 100% selfless with our money, and I suspect if you evaluate yourself, maybe you would agree with that. There's almost always something we could do to be more generous. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, says this, I don't believe that one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts and luxuries and amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say that they are too small. There ought to be things that we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. I think he really gets to the heart of the matter here. That sacrifice is sacrifice wherever you find yourself on the financial spectrum. And the call is to generosity and sacrifice. And so every one of us needs to ask ourselves, hey, what is sacrifice for me? What is sacrifice for us as a family? What does that look like? Because there are many that that number, that point where it starts to you know, infringe on what we want to do, might be well above 10%. And if we're honest, we could always be doing more. And so this is an important question. And sometimes, of course, the answer is no, we can't give more. This is, this is where we're at, where it's, it's tight. We, but we've got to ask the question. We've got to be willing to ask the question, and regularly, I would suggest. I also think that Lewis is on the mark here when he says that our lives as Christians, as followers of Jesus, uh, in our lives there should be things that we have to say no to. 
Because we believe in something else. That we value other things. That we, we care for things and, and believe in things that, that lead us to give generously in ways that other people around us who don't believe the same things don't want to give that generously. The second thing we see in this passage is that Paul reminds us in verse 7 that, that giving and generosity, this whole issue, isn't something extra that we sort of tack on to everything else. In verse 7, he says, But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this grace also. Did you catch that little also there? Those are dangerous little words. Paul's saying that the same effort we put towards pursuing uh, anything else, any of our other spiritual disciplines, godliness, obedience, faith, purity, patience, kindness, all the things... The same way that we pursue those things, we should be striving and desiring to grow in our generosity and our sacrifice. And so much like we sit down and and prayerfully evaluate our our budgets, we should be also prayerfully and regularly sitting down and evaluating if there's ways that we can be more generous with our time and with our talents and our skill sets. We should regularly consider, are there ways that I can be more generous with my time in, in ways that only benefit other people? Is there a way that I can be more generous with the skills that God has uniquely given me that maybe they don't, that doesn't benefit me at all, but solely benefits other people? And just before you start to assume that there's going to be a big ask coming from the front right about now, know that sometimes when we ask God, He says no. He says, slow down, take a season of rest. Maybe take a next quarter, take the next six months, take a year, whatever. Focus on simplicity, focus on spending time with me. But he won't leave us there. This is a question we need to regularly be asking ourselves because the text here reminds us that we should be pursuing greater and greater generosity just like we pursue whatever other Christian elements or spiritual disciplines that we are working on. Paul tells us this is normal to excel in this also. Third, in these first five verses, Paul points us to an example where the math just doesn't seem to add up in the real world. In verse 1, he tells us that he wants the Corinthian church to know about this other church and the grace of God that's been given to the Macedonians. And then in verse 2, he says, For in their severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, and their extreme poverty, they've overflowed into a wealth of generosity. See the math there? He's saying extreme poverty plus a severe test of affliction, which is added to whatever that baseline of extreme poverty was in this moment, plus their joy equals generosity. Like famous generosity. Generosity we're talking about 2,000 years later. And this is an equation that just doesn't add up without grace. That's the only way this can sort itself out. Only in God's economy does that equation work out this way. And Paul highlights that. Right in verse 1 he says, We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God. Because without God it doesn't make sense. Paul's saying something supernatural happened in the church and they want to jump on board and it's God's grace. It's the only explanation. Now this isn't, again, to say that non-Christians aren't generous or can't be generous. That's not at all the case. But there's something we can pull out of here. As one writer says, the consistent sacrificial impulse that we see in the Macedonians is rooted in four ideas that only Christians will confirm and affirm. And it's those four ideas we're going to spend the rest of our time on this morning. And Paul starts to outline these in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 8. The first thing he's going to lead us to is God's gospel. 
Starting at verse 8, Paul says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter, I'm giving my judgment, this benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. So the first thing we see here is this issue of generosity and sacrifice is an issue that is core to the gospel. Paul roots generosity to the work of Jesus on the cross. We see that especially in verse 9, where he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Here's how Paul breaks it out for us. He's saying, Generosity and sacrifice are core to what it means to be a Christian because Jesus, though he was rich in heaven with all the glory of heaven, he chose to become poor, to come down and wind up naked alone and having absolutely no power on the cross so that we might become rich because of his work. And then in that verse, there's something of an implied sort of hanging there of, so what are you going to do about that? He was rich, became poor, so you became rich, so that what? The idea is that God himself became poor so that we could be rich, so that we too could pour out the blessing the same way God did in sending his son. So the way that we, that we would walk and should walk is the same way believers of the, the gospel would walk, and as followers of Jesus who declare and proclaim that we've been made new in Christ, and since Jesus was rich, he became poor so that we could become rich, so that we too can lower ourselves for the sake of others. And Paul goes even a little bit farther with this, which if we're honest, probably makes us squirm uh, maybe even a little bit more in our seats, when he says, you know what, this isn't a command, I'm not forcing you to do this. But prove yourselves. Prove by the earnestness of others that your love is genuine. Another translation says, I'm not, this isn't a command for you, but I'm testing how genuine your love is by comparing it with how eager the other churches have been. Say, I'm not, this isn't a command, but this will be a way that you prove your love. It will prove your way to the gospel that you claim is to get some skin in the game here. One writer helpfully asks a few questions as we come out of this verse. He says, does this mean that good Christians will give and that generosity is a mark of gospel conviction? Yeah, kind of. Not totally sure what you might define as good Christian, but obedience and sacrifice is absolutely a mark of gospel commitment. He asks, does this mean that all people who sacrifice are generous and good Christians? No. Does this mean that everyone who is not generous is a terrible Christian? Also no. We all have areas in our lives that need work. Does this mean that generosity and sacrifice are the mark of what it means to be a gospel-centered Christian? No, but it's definitely a mark. It's one of the marks. And so if we say that we're followers of Jesus, that means we are aligning ourselves with his life, death, burial, and resurrection. We're saying that, that his life shapes and gives us our identity. So we are saying we're his people, which means we will then go and do what he did. He didn't come to be served, but to serve, and he gave his life up for many. So Paul roots generosity into the gospel here. The second thing Paul then goes on to talk about is, talks about God's people, starting at verse 13 in chapter 8. 
For I don't mean that others should be eased and you should be burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it's written, whoever gathered much has nothing left over, and whoever gathered little has no lack. Now, if we weren't already uncomfortable enough, this language of fairness and sharing from our abundance also perhaps makes us a little bit squirmy. And there might be a few reasons why, especially considering maybe the the political climate that we're in in our day and age, but maybe these words just sound a little bit too socialist or something. Maybe, Maybe we like the free market idea of capitalism too, and so we believe that we've earned all that we have, and others haven't earned that because they've made bad choices. So that's on them. Maybe this makes us uncomfortable because we believe we deserve what we have. Maybe we give ourselves credit for our success and and just give blame to others for their failures. But this uneasiness is something that we need to wrestle with. Because here's the thing. Again, fundamentally, as Christians, we believe that every person in every place, born in every circumstance, is equally created in the image of God. And that our worth and value stems from that, not from anything else. And so here, Paul is reminding us of this, because uh, Paul can, uh, can say to the church, in light of this, we think that your abundance should supply their need, because fundamentally you're the same. You have the same value, the same dignity, you have the same worth, you have the same honor. You're all equal image bearers of God. And again, this is a, a fundamental teaching of the Bible, that we are all equally image bearers. And if we start to, to shift off that and believe something else, that, that maybe there's some sort of a hierarchy, or, or some people are more image bearing than others, this actually anti-Christ. It's against what Jesus taught and against what the Bible teaches us. So in light of that, Paul says with great conviction, if the people in Jerusalem need help, why wouldn't you help if you can We're all in this together. We're all fundamentally the same. You don't deserve what you have any more than anyone else does. And so Paul says we are to be generous because of God's gospel and his generosity towards us, but also because we are God's people. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7, he says, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you then received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? Why do you think, well, I I did this myself. Later in the New Testament, in 1 John chapter 3, John writes, By this we know love, that he, that Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and sisters as well. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. John's saying, you know what, the math that doesn't make sense is this. How can you not claim, how can you claim to know Jesus and not love others? We find in our world that there are all kinds of people with all kinds of means, and there are all kinds of people with all kinds of needs. So we need to ask, how are we sacrificing our time, talent, and treasure to serve all of God's people? Third, God's economy. We'll define economy a little bit later, but we'll get there. Chapter 9, starting at verse 6, Paul writes, The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work, as it's written. He is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. And you will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Now, God's economy always starts with generosity, and it always starts with God's generosity. And we can track this through the entire narrative, grand narrative of the Bible. We see right at the beginning that creation was initiated by God, that He generously made us and generously made a world in which we can thrive. When sin entered the world not too long later, God generously gave Adam and Eve covering, which implied that there would be a continued relationship in spite of their sin. A couple chapters later, God was generous and made a covenant with Abraham, even though Abraham didn't do anything necessarily to deserve that covenant with God. Much later, God generously gave His Son for redemption. God generously gave and gives us the Holy Spirit to lead and convict, and God will one time, uh, in one day, generously come again and restore all things. And so God's economy, we could say God's economy is the way it's all supposed to work. And it always starts with God's proactive generosity. As we dig in here in verse 6, Paul says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, but whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And when we read that, when we look at those words, it might make us think, wait a minute, is this, is this prosperity theology? You put enough in, you get enough out? Absolutely not. Prosperity theology ultimately turns God into a vending machine or a genie in a bottle. If we say the right things or if we write a big enough check, then God has to respond in the same way and has to prosper us. And that's not how this works. But every false teaching, like the so-called prosperity gospel, is built on a kernel of truth. And Paul here does say, if you're, being, if you're sowing sparingly, you won't experience the generosity. But if you are generous, then you will experience generosity. Now, this receiving of generosity won't always be how we expect. It's absolutely not one for one. I know that in my experience. You can probably identify with that as well. God likes to surprise us at times with how he will be generous with us. But there does read clearly that there is some kind of a cause and effect thing going on here. And if we take it in context, we see that this actually follows with the gospel. If we allow the gospel to make us into the kind of people who are generous because we have these convictions of God's generosity with us, and then because of that we act generously with those around us, it means that we will be loving God and loving people well, and then we'll actually start to function, as theologian Stanley Hauerwas says, we'll be uh, functioning and acting as we follow the grain of the universe. It's an interesting picture. If you've ever worked with wood or cut steak or a roast, you've realized that if you cut in a certain way, it works better. If you're playing golf, if you hit, a, hit the green and you're trying to putt along the green, the, the ball rolls better if you're going with the grain as opposed to against the grain of the grass. And so Haroas talks about this idea of the grain of the universe. That's, that's the way God made things to be. And as Christians, we hear from the Word of God, we hear God speak to us, and it informs us how the universe is supposed to be, what the grain of the universe is, even though it's fallen and broken and there's sin in it. 
And so even though this cause and effect doesn't work out as maybe it's supposed to because of sin, Paul is saying that, that when we act generously, we will receive generosity, we'll receive generously, not only from God, but from people around us as well, because that's the way the world is supposed to work, and that's the way it was designed to work, and so that's how it happens. And this is always started and initiated by God. And so what we want to catch here with this grain of the universe uh, kind of idea is that there is an inherent otherness that's fundamental to Christianity. And it says that right from the beginning that, that God cared not only for himself but for us. He created a world we could live in. He created a world that we could enjoy and thrive in. And then that God saves us and walks with us in spite of our sin. He always cares for us. And, and God initiated that. So it is, it's consistent that a Christian worldview and a Christian ethic, uh, God would ask us too to be about the other. Quiz time. When Jesus was asked about what the greatest commandment is, what did he say? So I, I can't, you gotta, gotta give, me a, give me a little more here. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says the two greatest commandments are not about getting, but about giving. Love God, love the other. And so the foundation of a Christian ethic is that it is other-oriented, and that's how God's economy was designed to work. Lastly, as we come to a bit of a close, God's glory we see here. Second Corinthians 9, starting at verse 12 to the end of the chapter. Paul writes, For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it's also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. These last verses kind of bring us full circle as we experience the generosity of God in our lives. Now maybe for some of us it feels like it's been a while since we've experienced God's generosity. Or maybe we, we don't feel like we ever have experienced God's generosity. And sometimes a piece of that is because we ourselves haven't come to a place of humility to acknowledge all the ways God actually has been generous with us. Because when we acknowledge that, you know what, this mind I've got is a gift from God. This breath I just took is a gift from God. All these things I have are a gift from God. We don't get to take credit for that anymore. When we acknowledge that, that all these things come, uh, didn't come from you, but were given to you, they were gifts, we don't get to take credit for that anymore. And it takes humility to get to that point. And that's kind of where we started, where we acknowledge that God has blessed us, and that truth gets into our hearts, it flows out of us to others, when they then experience God's blessing through us. And so then when our neighbor experiences God's blessing through us, they can see the goodness and loveliness and otherness of God, and they, therefore, they can give praise and thanks, and they can learn to love God too. And that's what Paul is telling us here. He's saying, this is how it works. When you experience the blessing, you acknowledge the blessing, you pass on the blessing, people are blessed, and then that overflows into thanksgiving, where people can maybe come to a first-time faith in who God is and what He's done, or maybe renew their faith, or come to a greater faith in God because of that. And then when we give, He tells us, God gets the glory for it, which is really amazing. It really one of those, another one of those things that I have a hard time wrapping my head around. In our generosity, even in its own, uh, its, its most limited or basic forms, it still glorifies God. 
because this is the way the world is supposed to work. And we can be and should be a picture of it, of God's generosity for the world. So a couple of questions for us as we close, admittedly not easy questions. Will you, as we go from here, pray about your own sacrificial generosity this week? Bit of a follow-up. How might God be asking you to give sacrificially, not just of your treasure, but of your time and talents as well? How can you serve your local church? If this is it, how can you serve here? Whether it's in our services, there's lots of places we can uh, have more people helping out at the back and the sound booth at the front and the, as greeters, as teachers. As, as lot, there's, there's lots of places in our services we can find roles for people. There's lots of other things during the week, maybe as, as a group leader or a, a prayer warrior or an administrator, whatever else. There's, there's all kinds of ways that you can serve here and in your local church if this one isn't home. And let me maybe ask a bit of a pointed question. I don't think I'll need to ask for forgiveness for this, but maybe. If Trinity is your home church and you're not serving, why is that? Can you wrestle with that for me too? Earlier this year, uh, we presented a plan for a renovation to this building. We acknowledge that we are a growing church in an aging building. And so we are looking to launch an official capital campaign in uh, about mid-January. Would you start praying about how you can be involved in that, whether it's financially or on a team organizing and implementing this, ca- implementing this campaign? Start thinking and praying about that, please. I'd ask for that. Also coming up is October. Somehow, October is already almost here. Uh, historically, we've, had a, we've taken a Thanksgiving offering in October, which has helped go towards uh, the building and paying off the mortgage, which by God's grace we paid off in July, uh, maintaining the building. And so that's coming again, and we are going to have a Thanksgiving offering to again go towards the building fund, and that will again to be to help us maintain the building, but also sort of kickstart that capital campaign. Would you pray about what that might look like for you? And again, these are, these are the over and above asks of our tithe. Some hard questions, I think, that we need to wrestle through. But let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you for a topic that is maybe one that doesn't get enough press or nobody really likes to talk about. But Jesus, you talked about money and stuff a lot. Because it can grab our hearts and it can keep us from you. So God, I, I pray that you would work in and through our hearts, uh, even right now and in the, the hours and days and weeks to come, as we consider uh, how we will uh, grow in this grace of generosity as well. Jesus, thank you for the gospel. Thank you that uh, being rich, you became poor so that we can become rich, so that we can then share God's blessing with others. Jesus, thank you that you, you came and you lived the life that we were designed to live, that you showed us how to rightly relate with God and others and creation, that you went to the cross taking all of our sin, our unbelief, all the ways that we have untrusted or, or not trusted in God's word and his work, and you, you took that on you and you died paying the price that we can't pray, pay for our own sins. And then three days later, you rose again, conquering Satan, sin, and death, so that now we can be adopted and grafted back into the family as sons and daughters of, of the creator of the universe, so that we can be a blessing to those around us too. 
I even, God, pray that you would give us a name or maybe two names in our minds right now who we can share your blessing with, to share your, your good news with in the next days and weeks. We thank you, Jesus, again for this word and all that you are at work doing in us and through us. We pray in your name. Amen.